the irony is that we were going to do it as an eight uh, with just the three climbers remaining in the old gear to correspond to the three that Shackleton did his original trip with because he got three guys who were injured as well on his original. And, you know, lo and behold, three of ours get injured and the two cameramen give up and we end up with the same three as Shackleton. So mm. it was a, a... And again, you know, you can look at that as a negative or you can be positive about it and look at it as a as an amazing stroke of luck in that you you're suddenly given this unique opportunity to do things the way that he did it, very precisely the same. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we sit down with polar explorer, speaker, filmmaker and environmental scientist Tim Jarvis, a very cool interview in many ways that is likely to inspire anyone to try harder to fulfil the dreams they had as a child, to explore the uncharted and to live a life worth living, even if it all seems scary. Tim's latest focus is 25-0. Please Google it. So it's 25, the number, and Z-E-R-O. In today's interview, we hear about how Tim's Explorer Club as a young boy has guided his conquering Antarctica, including replicating Sir Douglas Mawson's and Sir Ernest Shackleton's historic Antarctic expedition and a further record-breaking Antarctic crossing in 1999. Tim is author of multiple books, including Shackleton's Epic, I Have Read and Highly Recommend, and Mawson, Life and Death in Antarctica. We go on a fascinating journey from what goes into preparing such monumental expeditions, how to build a team that has what it takes, knowing your personal risk limits, how it is everyone's responsibility to save Antarctica, and much, much more. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. Thank you so much to, uh, for joining us today, Tim. Uh, an amazing story of adventure, resilience, triumph. There's sort of there's so many ways. When I was researching, I guess your background of where do we start, um, what what do we kind of explore, and I I thought um, like we've done in many of our interviews so far, we start right back at the beginning. What were you like as a young boy? Adventurous. I was adventurous. I uh, put it this way: I was inquisitive, always wanting to see what was around the corner and. And that's sort of fueled adventure, yeah. And that's continued ever since. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Right. Um, so, so if you kind of took at you as that that boy, and you now as a, a man, what what sort of what's been that um what what's been that transition? What were the sort of the, the, some of the kind of the the major moments in your life? Yeah, I, th- I think from boyhood, I, I grew up in Malaysia as a kid. I moved there when I was seven. My father was the uh, uh, the MD for a company distributing Tiger Balm throughout yeah. Asia, and it was an interesting life. And uh, I was there in the 70s, and there was no internet, nothing on TV, and my parents were very much of the opinion I should get out there and experience things for myself, which I did. And um, I think I've retained that sense of um, 
inquisitiveness into adulthood. Yeah. And um, I'm just a big kid really yeah. at heart and I retain a kind of uh, an idealism that things can be changed for the better as as well. And that's yeah. kind of a child, almost a childlike characteristic that I've continued. Into so, so that adulthood. sort of that most children will have that passion to and that, that imagination and that desire to change the world or just that exploring, you've been able to maintain that? Is, is that yeah, I have been able to maintain it. Look, it's not easy, is it? We all know that life is, uh, you know, you get pushed in particular directions. There are certain things one sort of has to do. There are certain commitments one has. But I've still retained a sense that if you have the conviction, you can change things from the way they are to something different from the way they are. Mm. Um and I think that kind of attitude fuels uh, kind of optimism in, in the fact that you can achieve big things in adventure, but also uh, in the environment space where I work, I feel that I can change things. Yeah, and that that almost that, that gives you that hope, doesn't it? Really, that hope that you can that sort of that that searching for that that next. Yeah, thing. I mean, I, look, I think expeditions at the extreme level are a, a kind of suspension of disbelief. You, you just you just convince yourself that you're going well and that everything is possible, even if things are obviously not. Yeah. And um, I think it's a very useful skill to have to convince yourself that you're on track when, in fact, the goal is huge and you're still a long way off. And I think there are parallels between that, the, the you know, climbing to the top of a mountain or achieving an environmental goal. Yeah. yeah. Where were you born? Where, where did you well, I was born in Manchester, childhood. in Manchester as a kid, um, and then moved to Malaysia when I was seven yeah. and grew up in Asia. Uh, Malaysia. That's been a big. <laughs> yeah, a big it was. A, it was. A, it was a big deal because I mean, I'm uh, you know I'm 52 now, and I we, we went to Malaysia in 73 when I was seven. So what took your family to Malaysia? Well, my father was uh, the accountant, the chief accountant for for the for the Tiger Bomb operation yeah, yeah. in Asia, and um, but we'd come from South London and just went to Asia, and you know the it was the tail end of the Vietnam War, and it was a a risky thing for him to have done to take a young family. My brother was only. Uh, babe in arms, you yeah. Know? And uh, but after initial resistance, I I came to love it. You know, I'd left friends behind. But how long did it take you to get over that initial resistance to go? Yep, yeah, this is this. Well, is my mother tells me here. Yeah, my mother tells me that uh, for six months, I I I would you know always bring up my friends back in London, and we lived in kind of a rural suburb in South London, lots of play spaces and things like that. And then one day, I just stopped doing it and I'd replace that with a new narrative which was all the fun things I was doing where we were and in yeah. fact Malaysia in those days was just you know there were wild dogs and troops of monkeys and old tin mining dredges you could make camps in and bits of remnant pockets of jungle yeah. and you could have a great time yeah and being sort of compared com- like thinking about back then when that's way before the internet you would have you were living very much in that in that area. It wasn't the world wasn't as global as it, it as it is today. So you live in the moment, and um, I'm someone ironically who really enjoys living in the moment, but actually now finds my time my my finally spend a lot of my time living a little bit in the future. I've got to plan. The bigger the expeditions are, the more logistics are required, the more money and people and resources are required to make them happen, and. Um, uh, I, you know, my world is kind of a global world, so I live in Adelaide, but I communicate with people all over the place. Yeah. So I'm, ironically, I'm, I'm somebody who likes living in the moment, and I spend increasingly large blocks of time not living in the moment as much as I'd like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what did you study? What, what, when, what you 
did you study sort of after after school? And- yeah, so I I, uh, I did a geomorphology degree first up, which is kind of physical geography yeah. essentially, and then I followed that with an environmental uh, science master's degree in the UK, and I wanted to go and save the world working in developing countries, um, and then I came to uh, Adelaide where a lot of the work that was being done in developing countries, consulting firms were based in Australia, and I came out here being offered a role to deliver some of these projects. And um, I did an environmental law master's here at Adelaide Uni. And I found I was dealing with lawyers all the time, trying to sort through environmental issues. And, uh, you know, kind of it sneaked up on me. I ended up developing quite an academic track record, even though that's not my natural yeah. inclination. Yeah, okay. So you then, and then sort of the expeditions, the the mammoth expeditions you've been on, replicating Mawson's uh, expedition and uh, Shackleton's journey, they're huge. How do, you, how do you get to the point of, of doing doing those? Well, you just decide to do them. Um, I think uh, you, you have an internal discussion with yourself. Uh, I, I guess the, 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 um, the history of it for me was that I had done one major Arctic expedition when I was based in the UK, and I just decided to do that as a physical challenge almost yeah. as much as any. In fact, someone threw the gauntlet down and said, I bet you couldn't do that. And I did that. And then I, um, uh, I've always had sort of two parallel worlds. One is the environmental stuff and the other is the, the adventure stuff. And uh, in my parallel world, I got offered this, this role here in Adelaide. And I thought, well, I'll hang up the, the, uh, the polar boots for a while because the Arctic trip had been reasonably successful. And I get here to find the places... Is, is steeped in the legacy of Douglas Mawson, you know, probably you know Australia's greatest polar explorer, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know I felt that there were forces at work. I was here, and and in fact, you know, Mawson was originally born in the UK on the other side of the Pennines from me, with the same height. Um, we both ended up with roles uh, at uh, Adelaide Uni. And in fact, our birthdays are only one day apart, albeit fifty or sixty years adrift. <laughs> so I, I kind of wondered. Well, there was something in that. Yeah. And, uh, so does that seed start planted in, in your own mind and you start researching Douglas Mawson and thinking, what's this all about? And then is, is that how it works? Or? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed the, uh, whatever you want to call it, adventure or, or getting out there trying new things because I feel that that spirit of adventure is such a fundamental part of it, part of me, but it's a part of so many people. It's part of the human condition. Mm. You know, you you need to explore what you're capable of and, and, and understand a bit more about this mortal coil and you don't do that living within yourself. And so you push yourself and whatever the, whatever the field is, you choose to do that. And there's many, many, many ways that manifests itself, not just climbing mountains, obviously. And, um, so I, um, I came here and I still, you know, still had that, that was still very much a part of me. But as soon as I arrived, as I say, I started to find that people were saying, Oh, Douglas Mawson, you're about the same height as Mawson. And, I wonder if you could do a trip the old way, but given that you've done that Arctic trip in the modern in the modern way, and I found that the conversation kept coming up. Um, in fact, that's not the first trip I did. I did a, a South Pole trip with modern equipment, but the seed was sown about doing the Mawson expedition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you tell me uh, just for our listeners uh, the so they can get an idea of the significance of. Well, I'll focus more on as we move on, sort of to Shackleton's uh, journey. But the significance of uh, replicating Mawson's expedition—I understand you did that by and large without technology—and is that is that right? Yeah. That's right. So I mean, I'd come from the UK, I'd done this Arctic trip. I came here and I did a very long, um, grueling 
at the time record-breaking South Pole trip. It was the longest trip of, of its type at the time um, in the modern way. And um, someone brought up the topic again of trying to do Mawson's journey, but doing it the old way. And I'd done a trip north and a trip south with modern equipment. And I was genuinely intrigued to see what it would be like to do it, depriving myself of GPS and Gore-Tex and that sort of stuff. So I turned the clock back and did it exactly the way that Mawson uh, did it. And the, the expedition to which I'm referring is the one where he lost both his colleagues. Yeah. In 1913, they were on an expedition. One fell in a crevasse, the other one died of something, uh, probably malnutrition, hypothermia, and you know general exhaustion in Mawson's arms. And Mawson successfully made it, you know, 47 days, virtually no food. Um, and many people have both, uh, you know, uh, honoured what he had achieved and said, amazing, but there were a few rumblings about whether he might needed to have cannibalised the second guy. Yeah. And so um, my motivation was not to do it to prove his innocence or anything, it was to do it just to honour what he'd done and test myself, but it soon became, in the media's eyes anyway, Jarvis seeking to prove that Morton didn't eat the second guy. Yeah. And I travelled with a, an increasingly nervous Russian bloke, as I always say, um, who would kind of, you know, sleep with a knife in his hand, wondering whether I was going to, you know, take a chunk of his thigh to like a mirage, su- 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 supplement my ink, yeah. my food. And uh, anyway, I, I, I did the journey as close as you can to the way Mawson did. Yeah. What what sort of bond do you establish with a, your um, expedition partner? Under those conditions? Well, very close. Uh, the guy, John Stukolo, is a, is a good friend of mine, Russian, based in Sydney now. And, um, uh, he, you know, he's a wonderful mountaineer. He's a great guy, uh, hard as nails, you know, uh, doesn't mince his words. Um, and the deal was that he would he would be Mertz, the guy who died in Mawson's arms, in the original. And um, he would travel together with me, uh, again, with the old equipment, same as me, same food, same type of sled as they had, same weights, uh, until we'd either covered the same amount of ground that Mawson and Mertz had covered on the original or until um, the day came when Mertz died on the original, regardless mm. of how much ground we'd covered. And in fact, we got to about the same point as they did in the same time, and he left on day 24 and then I was on my own. Yeah. But the bomb was very close, and it felt like uh, he died, actually, uh, the fact that he'd been extracted. Yeah, yeah. Um, doctor came in, measured my weight, and... Uh, and took a few blood samples and urine samples and things like that, and off they went. And yeah. I was there on the polar plateau for my on my own for three and a half weeks. Yeah, and you lost a lot of weight, as I understand. Lost a lot of weight. Lost about thirty kilos all up from yeah. start to finish. Yeah. What What goes through your mind in those sort of three weeks when you're alone and losing weight, and obviously you're, I'm assuming you're exhausted, and um, do you just sort of just keep? soldiering on and yeah any number of different things some days you see life with a kind of blinding clarity you know you really do you think here i am someone walking along um on the bottom of the world as it you know rotates on its axis revolving around a fairly insignificant star in a mid-sized galaxy you know you really become intensely aware of your um place in the scheme of things Insignificance, or you and your your insignificance, but also you go off on these great journeys of, uh, you know, dredging through the depths of your life experiences and your memories, and wondering what happened with certain situation. You reevaluate. You've got plenty of time. Other times you redesign your bathroom because you just, you know, you you're bored. Other times you just cannot face thinking about anything more than the next couple of minutes, and then you just keep yeah. chugging away, ticking small increments off. 
Um, and, you know, other days you just re retreat back into the routine of, of, of doing things, fixing things, eating, walking, climbing, putting up the tent, the things you trying have to, to navigate do, accurately. Yeah. And, um, and it's a combination of all of those, all of those different things. Some days you think you hear other people, you know, you, you're really almost hallucinating. You're just so tired and hungry. Yeah. Do you, you, you journaled most days, I'm assuming? I did. I mean, I kept a journal every day and that then formed the basis of the book I did. And uh, it was good to do it because it helped you um, reassert some control over the situation in your own mind anyway by writing it down and feeling that you, you were sort of controlling it. Yeah. It's a strange thing. And it was someone to talk to, have a discussion with yeah, yourself yeah. about yeah. what you were experiencing. When you, when you read back over those journals, what are the sort of things you... You, you see, sort of, what was it like every day? Going, that was a bloody hard day. Yeah, so just we... just the um, the extent of the mood uh, swings. Sometimes you'd you'd read the words and you think, wow, I mean, I must have been in a pretty dark place when I wrote that. And then other times you're you're upbeat. Yeah. And I'm prone to being someone whose moods swing around quite a bit anyway. I keep a fairly calm exterior, but I'm you know, there's a lot going on inside, and you you know, I'm somebody who likes things to happen spontaneously and yeah. often quickly um uh but uh yeah reading the difference in the in the moods during the course yeah. of that trip yeah it's always interesting to reflect back on our our life and particularly in a in, in in your journeys where they're so intense just re reflecting back on that journey of how you felt at that point and and what you learn learn from it so as i understand it um you finished uh, replicating mawson's journey and then within a week or so you were approached by Alexander Shackleton to... Yes, that's right. I mean, I, I'd become friendly with her anyway. She's Shackleton's uh, granddaughter. Um, and she had uh, met... I'd met her in 2000. Um, so I met her three years after I did my South Pole yeah. trip. And um, I met her at the Greenwich Maritime Museum in London where there was a big polar gathering and someone introduced me to her. And I was very honoured to meet her being the granddaughter of the famous Shackleton and we became very good friends and then once I'd done the Mawson trip she called me up and congratulated me and said um you know I'm after someone like you to lead mm. uh, a journey to retrace the journey of my grandfather and I said look I I did Mawson really as a, a kind of one-off I like to break my own ground um but she was pretty insistent yeah she wrote a, a, a nice um forward in your book Shackleton's epic where she talked about uh what Shackleton uh, talked looked for in a in a good explorer. I think it sort of said optimism, patience, and imagination. Mm. And she saw that in you. Can you unpack that a bit? Yeah, she did. I mean, I think, like I say, I think optimism is is a, is a key thing in expeditions because even when things are terrible, you've got to be have an ability to convince yourself otherwise. There's a kind of element of self delusion that needs to be in there. And at the extreme level of optimism you know, self-delusion plays a role. You know, you think, wow, things are bad. You know, you've got frostbite, The uh, you've lost a lot of weight, the weather is terrible, you've got a long way to go and a very heavy sled to pull and you don't know where you are. Uh, you have to be optimistic in those circumstances. Patience, I've learnt um, over the years. You know, I, I've developed it. I understand it's part of the, the game. And that's a learnt skill, really. That's a learnt attribute. It's not something that comes naturally to me. I've just learned that it's part of the uh, part of the game. What else did she say about me? She said optimism, patience, and imagination. Imagination. But patience is more 
it's you just have to be. <laughs> you've yeah, got, you have you've to got be. no other you choice. Have to you have like, to be. When, Come like to the territory. Your, in the Morrison's yep. exhibition, you can't go, I want to be at the end now because you've got to just get to the end. Um, and I guess sort of just there's just patience. You just need to, yeah. to do that. Imagination I've always had lots of, I think, uh, in, in that I'm always uh, I'm always thinking, I'm always seeing new angles. I think, um, I think you know, in expeditions, just as in life, problems, and there are inevitably problems every day, more so in expeditions, they're more intense in expeditions because they're a kind of compressed version of life. You have to be imaginative to see your way around mm. problems. You have to think laterally all the time to still get the outcome achieved, even though you're, mm. the route ahead of you is is blocked. You, you become a very good converge, a divergent thinker rather than a convergent. Yeah. And almost telling that, is that telling the story in your mind and, and problem solving in your mind, almost like they're rolling rolling around the thoughts and that's right it's just sort of associating um different bits of information together and seeing a way through and and um you know i think over the years doing a lot of the expeditions has taught you that capacity to problem solve better than before and i I, i'm the patron of something called nature play and i'm always saying that i think um nature is a great teacher of kids teaching them resilience and problem solving ability there are no straight lines and you have to constantly navigate and um you know sort of metaphorically and uh and it's it's a great teacher it's a great teacher and i think uh the things i've learned over the years i now reapply to other aspects of my my life but they're not necessarily like sort of look at you i think you think in one of your bits that said you're six foot five you were quite a strong guy and an explorer but still you have that sort of self-questioning and that need to to, to train yourself, to build yourself, to build that resilience, to to learn from what you've gone through. That's right. I think the day you uh, you're no longer effective is when you um, you feel you've got it all worked out and you've got nothing to prove to yourself, and uh, then you're just going through the motions, um, and that's when it's time to sort of hang up the boots. But I tend to approach each new challenge I have with a genuine questioning about whether I've got the ability to overcome it or not. And I think it's important to do that. Can you explain that a bit more? Well, I think, uh, you know, um, I think there's a tendency um, for people to, you know, achieve one big thing and then live off the back of that for the rest of their time, you know, and do things well within their ability. I think I, I like to think anyway that I'm constantly pushing my own personal envelope. I'm always in a state of kind of discomfort uh, as to what I'm taking on. I'm constantly... Challenging myself. Almost like you're taking it back a bit of going, well, there's no way I can achieve that. And then you sit back, ponder it, and start to unpack it a bit further. Yeah, and it teaches you it teaches you a lot of confidence when you see that you can you can overcome these things. And uh, but I believe in constantly trying to push. It, it, it I think it was um, who was it? Aristotle. I think said, "You are what you repeatedly do." It used to be a line that was up at the rowing club to get people to train harder. And I think uh, you know, for me. The person I am is the one who's always comfortable in a state of disquiet yeah. or disharmony or, 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 you know, just on the edge of my ability and just, and that sort of becomes who you are. You feel more comfortable in that strange state of mind yeah. than you do living within yourself. That's right. That, 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 that importance of self-awareness and knowing that that's just who you are rather than trying to fight that part of who you are, just embracing that personality is that is that right yeah that's right look it's a, i think it's a very important thing to learn in life and learn certainly in leadership you know you've got to understand where your deficiencies are and i've got plenty of them and understand where your strengths are and you try and 
you try and recruit people who make up for the deficiencies that you possess so yeah. that you collectively can get the job done. Yeah. When, what age were you roundabouts that you started having more self-awareness of this type of person you are? Was it from a young age or do you... Yeah, look, I think, uh, I think I had a, there was one occasion when I was 12 when we were in on a jungle camp in Malaysia. I just started school in Singapore, funnily enough, and we were up back in Malaysia again and uh, I was there with a bunch of kids. We all got lost. And I used to just carry a compass around with me because I thought it was the kind of thing that an adventurer did. And I used to think of myself as one. I had a thing called the Adventurers Club. And it was only me, I think. <laughs> and I had a little book and might have been one friend uh, in it. And I had a little, you know, hut that I built and this sort of stuff. And I used to just carry a compass because I thought it was the thing to do. And then I thought, hold on a second, I've got a compass. Let's just see. And I thought, well, it must be east to get to the coast from where we were. And we were in this jungle and peninsula of Malaysia. And we were there with a with a bunch of teachers and they dropped us off. And the idea was that uh, we were meant to do this particular exercise. Of course, we didn't. And we genuinely got lost. It got dark and the other kids were panicking. And I got my compass out and thought, let's give it a try, yeah. you know. And uh, we went east. We were just bush bashing through thick jungle, you know, until we came out on the coast. And then I thought, well, it must, we must have been north from where we were. We better go south. And we went south. And, you know, a few hours later, we turned up back and... It was a real moment of thinking, um, you know, I've obviously learned a bit. Yeah. And maybe I'm more than the sum of the parts. And, uh, yeah. you know, I like to think of myself as an adventurer. Maybe I've picked yeah. things up. Did your parents know about that situation? Oh, they were told. I mean, yeah. the uh, they were, you know, the teachers had to report back. We were there for a few days on this on this uh, trip. And um, had to be told that we'd been lost for yeah. eight hours or whatever it was. And... Um, you know, they maybe didn't think anything of it, but at the time I really clocked that. Yeah, that yeah. sent that feeling of who I was from yeah, that moment. That's right. Stayed and with me. So you sort of, so you don't, don't think it, it wasn't sort of on one of your expeditions, you kind of suddenly realised that that's, that's who I am or those sort of the inner turmoil in your mind sort of didn't sort of. Well, like I say, I think the more you do of something, the more it becomes become. who you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it's interesting, you know, you you often understand how far you've gone in life or how far in a particular direction you've gone in life when you meet someone you haven't seen for a long time and they remember you as being someone different from the way that you yeah. you perhaps now are. You might have some of the, the old characteristics, but you've you've chosen to go a particular route in life. Yeah. And, um, you know, yeah. it... it it's interesting to it's interesting to be made aware of it. Yeah. Sometimes you don't see the small incremental change, but yeah, uh, yeah, when right. someone mentions it, you you're aware of it. Yeah. yeah. So, can you just uh, give us an idea of the the significance of Shackleton's journey? Like, so, very small boat. I guess it was that that and and the um, the. Yeah, the, the team and trying to replicate that. Can you explain sort of? Uh, well, yeah, the 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 journey was. Um, the Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition is what the original was called, and Shackleton's goal was to cross Antarctica one side to the other on foot, and it all went wrong when the ship that he went south in got crushed in the ice, and uh, the rest was a, an incredible journey of survival. Edmund Hillary, who first went up Everest, described it as the greatest survival journey of all time, and it involved uh, the men initially living in their stricken ship. There were 28 of them, including Shackleton, a uh, ship got crushed by pack ice. They lived in the stricken ship for 10 months. Then they lived on the pack ice for another five months. Then they paddled their three 
lifeboats, which are essentially surf boats from the edge of the pack ice to an island, narrowly making it. And Shackleton left most of them in there. And then, of course, had to undertake an even bigger journey in one of those lifeboats across the Southern Ocean from the Antarctic to the sub-Antarctic to try and raise the alarm and get everybody rescued, which he managed to do against the most incredible of odds, you know, huge sea, an exercise in, 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 in you know, navigational expertise and luck mm-hmm. to reach this dot in the ocean, which is an island called South Georgia, where he knew there were whaling stations where he could try and get, get guys to go and rescue the people he'd left behind in Antarctica. He gets to the wrong side of South Georgia and he has to climb through the mountains of South Georgia um, to reach the whaling station on the northern side. He's arrived on the southern side. And that journey in itself was a, an incredible exercise in endurance and you know risk-taking, no equipment, yeah. nails pushed through the soles of their boots yeah. for grip and uh, one length of rope, no tent, very little food. And they weren't pre- no maps. prepared for the conditions that they no were. No maps, they had no climbing expertise and yeah. they... They did this journey in a time that even modern mountaineers have been unable to replicate. So, and then they reached the whaling station, raised the alarm, saved everyone. Yeah. And then many died in the First World War when they returned, because this is just during the First World War that this, these events were happening in 1916. But it was a, an amazing, amazing journey. And when I was asked by the Shackleton family if I would replicate the journey, of course, I said yes. Straight up. And the rest is history. Straight up. Is that right? Is that, yeah. 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 No, she said, you know, would you do it? And I said, yeah. Yeah. I'll do it, and um, very honoured to have been asked. And then you know, put the phone down and, and thought, okay, right. You're married. I'll sleep time. on this. Yeah. I was married. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had, uh, you know, I didn't have any kids at that stage, and uh, they came along. Uh, they came along during the planning of that, which took four and a half years of planning. Yeah. Uh, but once you've said you you'll do something, you've got to commit. You've yeah. got to commit to it. So, so can you explain a bit more? Once you've made that commitment to to a person, to a, to a, to yeah, a project? Yeah, once I commit to a course of action, generally, I, I'm that kind of person. I like to follow through on what I've said. Um, and in fact, you know, looking at it from the other side, it's actually a very useful thing to do is to public, publicly commit to something. And you know, if you're the kind of person who has to follow through on it, then you've kind yeah. of, it helps make you follow through on it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, so I did commit to it. But there are many moments where I question, you know, what was going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's a risky undertaking, uh, getting in a small keelless sort of rowboat with old clothes and yeah, so you didn't, no you, GPS. You didn't have, you didn't have no. a waterproof clothes, you were... No, no, yeah. we had uh, cotton smocks and woolens and leather boots and... You know, no guy lines, no EPIRBs, no life jackets. It was, yeah. a, it was a tough old trip on a very, very uh, unstable small boat. Yeah. So how big was the boat? Can you just give some idea? 23 foot, which is uh, basically a surf boat. So the surf boats that we row here are, are just uh, they're a copy of the old Royal Navy uh, lifeboats, and they became the, the surf rescue lifeboats. And, um, and that's what Shackleton took across the Southern Ocean. Yeah. So you, and you had how many? You had five guys. In the Me boat? and five, so yeah. six in a small six. boat. We built the gunnels up a bit, like Shackleton on the original. Built them up by about forty centimeters. Put a little deck on there, made out of planks from, in his case, the other two uh, boats. Yeah. For us, we just you know put them on, uh, but we only had a piece of canvas over that with paint, 
and uh, you know water would get through for him just as it did for us. Yeah, yeah, very challenging. No yeah. keel, which yeah, makes the well, boat okay. prone to uh, to capsize, just yeah. like a surf boat. If you've seen surf boats tip yeah, over yeah, in the yeah. surf, then you know what our journey was like in the Southern Ocean. And you had some of your crew who are obviously um, more skilled at sailing, and some more skilled at. Yeah, we had three three climbers, of which I'm one, yeah. um, and three sailors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the sailor's job was to get us to the island, but we all trained to be good sailors by the end of two years of fairly intensive training. We had to learn to traditionally navigate using a sextant and a chronometer and a compass. And, um, dead reckon, which is all about, you know, understanding the speed and direction of travel yeah. in the absence of having any other navigational aids and just getting a feel for where you are. Um, and then we taught the sailors to climb, so they became half-decent climbers. So when we got to the mountains, they could get themselves over steep things without falling off and killing themselves, and, yeah. and it worked. One of the, th- one, one of, um, the aspects of um, Shackleton's ep- epic, uh, your, your book that I found fascinating was um, the discussion around the planning. So we sometimes assume that we're sort of it's just you start something and you just go on and, and you do it. But the the planning in many ways sounded like <laughs> exasperating and and um, yeah, and it wasn't just about you. It was obviously your family. You had your, your boys and and your wife in the UK, as I understand. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I think um, you know nothing in life is really linear. Uh, we 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 only think of it as being nice and linear. In other words, you know, you as you go through life, you you achieve life experiences and that makes you a better person and more well-rounded and, you know, hopefully your finances improve and, you know, and, and, you know, everything's on a gradual kind of left to right up, upward trajectory. But of course it's not like that. You look at it in more detail, you realize there are plenty of peaks and troughs that you drop off and, you know, sometimes you go backwards, sometimes you go sideways. Um, and in the expedition planning, you know, we lost all of our funding. We had to start again. Um, we lost the boat that was going to take our small boat down to Antarctica to do this thing in the first place. That fell over with massive debt. Um, we had one or two people who didn't quite work out in the team, you know, and, and lots of stresses along the way. And all of those things have knock-on effects with every other aspect mm. of it. So, yeah, it was a pretty stressful experience. Yeah. And, and and just just even the money side sounded like there was – Obviously, is a, is a major thing of finding sponsors and, uh, and 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 funders. You had another boat going with you as well. Is that right? You had another. Well, we had a boat that was going to tow our little boat down there, and then the idea was that that boat would then take the cameramen who were going to film the climbing bit to the bit at the end, and then theoretically they were a boat in the Southern Ocean that, in the event that we, you know, sank, they would come and pick up the pieces. The last bit was totally impractical because in, in a big storm in the Southern Ocean, no one's coming but that was generally the role they were meant to meant to have uh that boat fell over at the 11th hour and taking a lot of the expedition money with it yeah or more specifically my mortgage because i couldn't allow the sponsors money to get wasted on on a failed enterprise so i had to cover them yeah Uh, it was a very stressful time yeah so in in that sort of and, and just just so listeners are aware, this is not like a um, a wealthy benefactor has come out saying here's here's a lot of money to just run this expedition. This is about you finding sponsors, finding funding, largely kind of going back, pulling back your mortgage, using your, your own funds. Yeah. You've got a beautiful bit of the the book about kind of going into it about your um, how grateful you are to your wife because she could see our declining bank balance online, but chose to be supportive and trust me, which I am eternally grateful for. And that kind of just 
And I think you've got to be thinking about every day another thing, another thing. <laughs> it just helped me and almost just needing to put that uh, that brave face forward. How do you do that in, in yeah, it is relentless. Sort of situations? Of, yeah. Is that about having that imagination of going, we're going to work towards that or just one step at a time? What? I think, you know, a whole series of different things allow you to cope. One is you develop a mindset. First of all, you you, you remain optimistic and you have a burning desire to do the thing and that's enough to overcome the the negative. Secondly, you have this capacity for self-delusion. You kind of have an ability to deliberately be a bit myopic about the big problems and just work on on the things that you know are going well. And you, you take on one problem at a time, and you don't allow them to overwhelm you. And then you develop an ability to just control the things you can control, and you do the best job of that that you can. And then you, like I say, you take on the big problems one at a time, and you you just try and work work through them. Um, but I guess this is where remaining optimistic and resilient is it's so critical. Is key, yeah, yeah. is absolutely key. And uh, anyone who joined the team, uh, the way I framed what it was that we were attempting to do was in such a way that I got the right people coming forward. If you say, look, we're an equal opportunities employee, you're going to have a great time, see new places, meet new people and come back with some rich life experiences at the end, then you're going to get a particular kind of person. If you say we're out there to recreate the greatest survival journey of all time, we're going to do it tough, it's going to be miserable, there's no pay. This is more or less what Shackleton has said, incidentally, of the original. Then you, you're framing it in such a way that you attract the right kind of personality type to the challenge. Yeah, yeah, and they, yeah. too, rise to the challenges you do. Yeah, okay. And um, it's a very important part of getting the right people for yeah. any endeavour. Yeah, okay. And then really sort of just that, yeah, focusing on things that matter, driving those, things you can't control, moving beyond those. Yeah, and just breaking the enormity of the whole thing down into manageable pieces. And this is something you do both when you're out there but also in the planning yeah. in the planning side. But it was pretty relentless, I have to say. Many, many months of brutal kind of problem-solving and decision-making. Yeah. In fact, more than a few months, really the last year of the planning was, was like that. Yeah, I've written before about sort of the uh, – wrote a blog recently about um, – about that, the importance when we, we that's uh, of understanding kind of that psychological fit between not not your, just yourself but yourself and your team and your, your 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 family and your partners of knowing well what how do we ensure that we're going on this journey not a, not as one individual but as a as as a group so how, how do you kind of do that when you're kind of having a so obviously you, 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 like your your wife and your partner and your family how do you kind of ensure that you're kind of on that same wavelength and well, ironically, I found the best way with my wife and I was for her to become more involved. I think if there's a, if there's a black box and she can't see inside it, and you're just suffering, and you know you shut the door, and you know you either hear whoops of delight or cursing and swearing, <laughs> or you know head in hands kind of moments. Um, I think it's worse for someone if they're not part of it. I think they'd rather participate in it and understand a little bit more about the whole thing. That way, you're not keeping things from them. You keep the odd thing just to try and maintain the stress levels for them. Uh, but I think there's something to be said for them getting more involved. And she became involved in aspects yeah. of the planning and understood what it was all about and understood that, you know, when um, funding fell over and we stumped up that overshoot, which is very considerable, um, from our mortgage that it was going to be worth it for the overall success of the project. We'd never pull it together again, not all the other elements that were in place already. Yeah. Um, 
and as I say, with 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 the others, you know, uh, if you want a team of people to really pull in the same direction and pull with all their might, you need to give them ownership of the thing. Not you, you want owners, not employees. Yeah. Um, and you want them to go to go home at night thinking that you know if something is unresolved, you know they take some ownership of that and they want to want to try and tackle it, and not just clock off at five, at, yeah, you know, five thirty on a Friday. So, and so wait how till do you Monday. find those individuals to, to to join your crew that you that that you felt you could feel comfortable with that they're on the same mindset? Well, you want to see what they've done in the past, obviously, but you want to see whether they fit together as a good team. You want the resilience. You want a sense of humour, a selflessness. But you give them specific tasks and you see how they perform in achieving them. You don't necessarily spell out all of the things they need to do to get the job done. You give them a problem and you see if they're capable of like what? How, get, how you, getting what, an what outcome. What sort of problems you create for, oh. or you, sort of, you, you put forward in, in this sort of situation? Well, <laughs> things like you know logistical challenges, getting the boat from A to B, finding a certain amount of funding, solving a particular technical issue with the boat, uh, smoothing over um, some problem that you have with a sponsor with whom you you built up a relationship they don't feel they feel they've got what you said they were going to get you might send one of your emissaries down to meet with them and and say look no of course you're valued and you know you give them a whole range of different things and then you see how people um who've said in their cv of previous things you try and spot areas of weakness and you test them on those you know if a Sailor has got a fear of heights. You obviously you've got to get them to overcome that if they want to participate in the yeah. climbing expedition. Or so you just had a job out, out there saying we're looking for people to um, to to apply. Or did you uh, go look, I, I was you know, on, on the original Shackleton, and apparently, probably apocryphally said, uh, put out an advert saying men wanted for hazardous journey, months of bitter cold, uh, darkness, uh, low wages, honour and recognition in case of success, safe return, doubtful, something like that. <laughs> Uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but the, the intent it was there. Good. The intent was there. That's what he was really looking for. I was tempted to run one of those. Uh, but in the end, I found that people uh, heard word of mouth what was going on. We built the boat at a traditional boatyard. They put the word out in the adventure community. People heard. In the corporate community, people heard. And before you know it, we had 200 applicants over the course of the expedition for the five places on the did you know six. some of the people? Or? No, 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 no. I had all sorts of people. From, from where, where did they apply? come from? Well, mainly um, some from Australia, mainly UK where the boat was being built and the logistics for the expedition were based because the Shackleton family are there as well. And some from the US, one or two from further afield. Um, but you want people who, um, you know, can do what they say they can do. And sometimes your role as the leader is to, is to sort of help them understand where their limits mm. lie and... Can, can you explain that a bit more? They're applying, going, I'd love to do this, I can do this. How do you, how do you question whether they can or can't? Well, I think sometimes um, the benefit of a longer-term expedition is you've got a little bit of time to give people a, a real-world problem to work on and then evaluate how well they've done that. Yeah, okay. In the corporate world, you know, there comes a time when, you know, someone comes for an interview, they come for a second interview, they meet the executive, and then they've got a job. Increasingly, we're seeing a situation in the corporate world where people are, uh, who've got through a couple of rounds of interviews, they might be given a real world problem that organization is faced with, and they're asked to work on it for a short period of time with the current executive and see if they can make a meaningful contribution. You know, there's real world ways to test people out, and that's mm-hmm. what I would spend a lot of time doing. And I think, you know, your role as the leader often is to um, make people understand what, 
where their limits really lie. Because, I mean, a lot of people will say what they're capable of, but you and they must know how that really stacks up compared mm-hmm. to the challenge you've set for yourself. I mean, if someone says I'm good in pressure situations and I've got a, a capacity for, you know, tolerating the cold, you've got to put them in a, in a really tough set of circumstances and see whether their version of what they think cold is and your version of what you think cold is are mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, and it's very important for you to un- understand as the leader of these things where people's uh, limits really yeah. lie and let them know that. Yeah. So you weren't you weren't necessarily in a position where you could say that these people have done, well, obviously not, that they've done exactly or they've done a very similar expedition before so we know they've had success so therefore we'll appoint these people. So you, in many ways you're appointing people into a role and you don't necessarily know their yeah, capabilities yeah. completely. Yeah, but one or two instances, for example, I had sailors who got through, uh, you know, all the practical trials and got on well with us and they were pretty selfless sort of guys. They would work for the team and all that kind of thing. And in one or two instances, I had them put their hand up and say, look, you know, I don't know that I'm right for this. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it. Given what I've seen is coming our way, I thought when I first... So this is once they got onto the... the um, not not in the, in the boat itself, the but in prior, the planning, yeah. in the lead-up to it. I had a very good sailor who, um, you know, he was faultless in so many respects, but he, he actually came up to me. And that's kind of what you want. You want people to develop enough self-awareness that they can make the decision for themselves and they can almost fall on their own sword. You don't have to say, sorry, you're fired. So is that about you priming them with yeah. information about this is what we're going to be going through, this is going to be the extreme? So not... Not sugarcoating the future. No, the, no. The the glory of it is about being the yeah. reality. I, I never sugarcoat. I mean, I'm optimistic, but I'm not blindly optimistic. I'm pragmatically optimistic. So I sort of, I tell it like it is, but but make sure people are aware of what the positives are associated with overcoming these problems. But I I'm telling them the problems nevertheless. You know. Um, so th- is this a, a, is this like a scary PowerPoint presentation you go through and? Or a video, or, or is it about just talking about this as the reality of what we're going to be dealing with? Well, I think when you go through the risk assessment, yep. um, everybody's there. They table all the things they think could go wrong, and you sit there and you have a very frank discussion yep. about those things. And you say, "Look, if any of us fall overboard, um, that's it. You know, you're not coming back because we can't turn the boat round. And we can try. We've got a boat with no keel. You can't yep. sail back into the winds and the currents that are predominantly pushing you north." In the case of us, northeast, um, you know, and your survival time in the Southern Ocean in one degree Celsius and a cotton smock and woolens, frankly, is very limited. You know, you've got ten minutes at the absolute outside, and we're not going to be able to get you in, in that time. So, if you fall overboard, that's it. What do the rest of us do? Well, I guess we, I guess, if we're in a position to continue on, we continue on because there's nowhere else to go. Um, the currents and the winds are pushing us in the direction of South Georgia anyway, the destination. So we may as well, may as well continue. So we have discussions of that nature and that, you know, that, that's a good way of doing it because everybody goes in eyes wide open understanding what the real level of risk is. Mm. And you, you, you sign a kind of covenant to say, well, look, I kind of accept that level of risk and I'm prepared to go into this thing. Yeah. And, you know, there's no point doing it any other way. Yeah. Like Shackleton's out of saying you will likely die sort of you need to be clear about going one of the yeah, risks is yeah. that you might you might die so yeah that's right that's right and i think you need to uh you need to have that kind of discussion amongst yourselves so you're all 
just aware of it. Otherwise, as I say, if you don't prime people, you, you get people who get down there and go, Oh, when you said windy, this is what you meant. Or, Oh, this is your definition of cold. Or this is your definition of what an unstable <laughs> boat looks like. Or, Oh, is that unstable? You know, so people have to understand words are not a very good way of describing a concept. You need to show them what you really mean by extreme cold or big seas or exposed mountaineering. Do you put them into extreme cold? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, we did, uh, you know, a lot of sailing in, you know, rough sea and then a few weeks sea trialing down in the Antarctic on top of that. Um, in addition to, you know, numerous sea survival training courses and understanding what it was we were going to go through and putting the, putting the, uh, sailors through the Royal Marines mountaineering training courses up in Scotland where they, They've got to, you know, survive the night in minus 15 with no tent, very little clothing, just keep moving, build igloos, you know, abseil. You know, it was, yeah, you've got to prepare it's people. It's like an extreme master chef. Yeah, you've got to yeah, right, right, sort of. We, yeah. It's down to the t- with, final with six. far worse food. <laughs> and the price of being the final six is you get to do it. <laughs> you get to risk it all. Yeah, that's right. That's it. Yeah, that's funny, isn't it? There we go. Um, so how many, you started off including camera people, film people, support people. How many people went on the, the expedition? 13, 13 ended up at South Georgia, the island at the end. So we all met down in the Antarctic. Um, there were six on my little boat, including me. And there were seven people on the other. There was a doctor, uh, a producer, two cameramen, and three people who sailed this other boat. Yeah. But it was another yacht, you know. So in... They towed us, they have an engine so they could tow our little boat to the start point. They did a bit of filming for the first day or two and then they left and then they rendezvoused with us at the end at right. the island that we were trying to reach. So the, for much, so for, so those, so it's three, sorry, they, they, they three, they three people it. sailed that boat. Yeah. Um, skipper and two sort of hands and then there were four film people on that yeah. boat. Our little boat didn't have any film people and we had, one guy, he was a cameraman friend of mine who was embedded within our team, but he's a very good mountaineer as well. Fixed cameras filmed everything for us on our boat. Yeah, and yeah. the ballast for that were batteries, the equivalent weight of the rocks that Shackleton took on his original yeah, okay. to try and stop the boat capsizing. Yep. So you, you started off with that number of people involved, and I think you got down to about three, is that? Well, <laughs> yeah, so we get to the uh, we get to South Georgia, um, and that is a long, it was a long and tough trip i have to say we, we got there and of the six on my boat um three ended up in poor shape physically and couldn't do the mountain bit um just mean they're just totally exhausted totally exhausted feet were in very poor shape they had trench foot a little bit of frostbite uh, toes were numb and they couldn't walk properly that sort of thing so they weren't going anywhere um the other boat, which had seven on, three of them were sailors sailing that boat, so they were never going to take part. And there was a doctor and a producer who were never going to take part. But there were two cameramen, climber cameramen, who were meant to accompany us on the climbing expedition. And both of them, for one reason or another, gave up. One of them with a, an apparent injury, and the other one got psyched out by things. But the reality is... Can both you explain that a bit more? Just get, that, that, that getting... I, I'm sort of interested in the... Again, you kind of can't go back to the point of what what you believe you can do versus what when when push comes to shove, whether you, what you, what you can do. And obviously, ex- this is extreme situations. Yeah. So we we had uh, we had our team of six from our boat, and we had two climber cameramen who were going to accompany us from the other boat. 
and um, we were going to rendezvous at the island and do the crossing of the mountains as a team of eight. Yeah. Uh, I lost three of mine with, with bad feet, so that was down to three. And then we had the two cameramen from the other boat who were meant to uh, participate. Now they had Gore-Tex, crampons, you know, all the modern stuff, eating modern food, everything else, all the safety stuff. But they, at the end of the day, um, I'd taken them more or less at face value as to what they said they could do. They yeah. talked a lot about successful filming on Everest and that sort of stuff. So I just sort of assumed, to an extent my hand was forced because they were a camera team that were um, kind of imposed upon me by the TV, by the broadcaster who bought the film. Um, but I did look over their details carefully and, and vetted them, but not to the extent I should have done. Mm-hmm. And again, we got to South Georgia and the wind was blowing like the clappers. We had 85 knots, so that's 150, 160 k's an hour of wind, very cold conditions, poor visibility, steep, dangerous terrain. And it turns out that their version of steep and windy and cold from their CV was not the same as the thing I had in my own mind's eye when I took them on. And that's where the problems arise, where you have to understand what one person's version of tough is compared to yeah. yours and they came up short unfortunately yeah. and it was my fault i should have i should have tested them a bit to know beforehand and that sense that we didn't sign up for this this is not we didn't sign up for this i, I got more or less that conversation yeah. from both of them one of them said look i got an injury i can't go on i don't think it was really an injury that was bad enough to stop i think it was really the guy was was scared of, of what what lay ahead um the other one said look sorry this is not what i what I signed up for and I think he was absolutely right it wasn't what he signed up for and I probably should have um, should have had a clearer understanding of that at the beginning yeah, yeah. so and obviously that was uh, frustrating and and you were going to soldier on because you'd promised you'd made that commitment but uh, my understanding is you kind of almost using your imagination as a group you kind of went well this is kind of what Shackleton's situation was largely as well he was down to about three as well is that, is that right? well that's right you know the irony is that we were going to do it as an eight uh with just the three climbers remaining in the old gear to correspond to the three that shackleton did his original trip with because he got three guys who were injured as well on his original and you know lo and behold three of ours get injured and the two cameramen give up and we end up with the same three as shackleton so yeah. it was a, a and again you know you can look at that as a negative or you can be positive about it and look at it as a and an amazing stroke of luck in that you you're suddenly given this unique opportunity to do things the way that yeah. he did it very precisely the same yeah. as he did it and uh, you can turn that into a positive yeah so if you look back at your, your journal i'm assuming sort of through this trip as well or yeah, what, what were some of the kind of the 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 scary moments or the, the or the, the the real the big lessons that you kind of learned Oh, I mean, there were there were lots of lessons to do with uh, team dynamics, understanding who I was better, how well I communicated, understanding where people's expectations really were, understanding the importance of getting that sort of stuff right, along with the practical things like, you know, traditional now, how to do it, how it really stacked up against the conditions we faced, um, experiencing some of the things that you'd read about so many times in Shackleton's original journals and then seeing them for yourself and then having an understanding as to what he meant mm-hmm. and uh, having always secretly thought, you know, once or twice that he might have embellished one or two things um, to get there and then find they were very accurate descriptions of yeah. the lay of the land. You know, that was really pretty sobering. 
Uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of scary moments, big sea in a, in a small keelless boat where the waves are towering above you is, is not for the faint-hearted, especially when you get hit sideways with massive waves at night mm. in the roughest sea in the world in, in, in this tiny, tiny wooden boat, you know, toy sail and a deck only about 50 centimetres above the surface of the sea. You know, it's very, very small and insignificant in a storm. Um, landing on South Georgia was very hairy because the winds and currents that have propelled us up in that direction were now pushing us directly on shore and you can't turn around and sail away. You've yeah. got to go in and the question is where? And the cliffs are big and a lot of uncharted rocks. And in the mountains we had very bad weather, uh, hurricane force winds for three or four days that stopped us moving anywhere. And then when we did get going we had more of the same. Lots of people dropping out and then, you know, some very heavily crevassed, dangerous terrain to cross with some steep descents with no equipment so i mean take your pick there are lots of yeah. lots of challenges yeah you, look, you must look back at some and go how, how did we actually yeah i do that? i do i i look back at it and think you know we uh we showed great resilience in getting through it and obviously for me I, I kind of always anticipated it would be the way it was you know from maybe the proportion slightly different um I'd underestimated the mountains big time. I thought if we could just get across the Southern Ocean in this little boat and find the island and not capsize at sea and, you know, somehow get through it, we're, we're home and hosed. And, of course, you get there and you realise that you've still got the mountains to go. Mm. And I'd rather thought of them as an afterthought, you know. And that was a, that was a mistake. But you learn. Yeah. You learn from these things. Is it, is it resilience? Is it... Is it problem solving is it it's a i guess it's all of that isn't it really it's just it's everything i mean I, I think it's a bit like saying you know when people say why i sort of say why not because i i think the idea of just depends how you frame it if if a bigger fear for me is living life that you know is is uh, you know either meaningless but doesn't quite have the value and the excitement to it that you thought it might have done it hasn't lived up to the expectations you'd sort of set for yourself um that to me is the greater risk than going out there and being a bit uncomfortable and putting up with some hardship and potentially some danger uh, along the way. It's like saying to someone who's just bought an expensive piece of art, piece of art, you know, is it worth it? And you think, well, it is for me. It may not be for you, but yeah. I feel it is. And it's about it being worth it at some level. Yeah. And so the ledger is in, is in the black rather than in the red in terms of, you know, reasons for wanting to do yeah. something. Okay. Um, I'm not, going to, I'm not sure if I'm phrasing this right, but you can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong. But uh, that Shackleton, uh, Shackleton's focus was to help save his men in Antarctica, and uh, your focus now is about saving Antarctica. That's right. I mean, a journalist had collared me, and uh, a couple of years after the expedition, and said, "You know, what's the difference between the two trips? Angling for some." hidden things. Um, and I said, you know, the big difference is Shackleton was trying to save his men from Antarctica. I'm now trying to save Antarctica from men. That's the big difference as far as I'm concerned. And then yeah. I suddenly realised it was quite a kind of a profound comment, really. Yeah, yeah. Can, um, you, can you sort of explain that a bit? Well, on the environment side, uh, uh, that's my main preoccupation. And I think I, you know, Antarctica is one of those places that's very susceptible to the issue of climate change, which is a topic that's very close to me and I tend to use the 
experiences from the expeditions, both to get my foot in the door with corporates who might want to hear a leadership lesson, maybe not an environmental one. And I think there are lots of things you can learn from the expedition experience about how you can deliver projects, mm. whether it's recruiting the right people, remaining resilient, uh, problem solving along the way, setting targets for yourself, celebrating achievement, milestones successfully achieved. And so I now find that the expedition experience is helping me to achieve the environmental goals yeah. with Antarctica as the, as the main kind of visual cue yeah. almost. So what, why, why does, why does um, climate change and the impact on Antarctica matter so much? What, 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 are you, what are you seeing, either evidence or just being, being there? What, what, what are you kind of... What, well, Antarctica for me personally has become, it's one of those places that lives on in many people's imagination as one of the great uh, um, unknown continents. You know, it's just a... I think it's important to have these vast tracts of wilderness that we haven't subjugated that still exist in the imagination or in reality. And the reality is they exist in reality. Yeah. Um, but also melting of, of ice is a very clear visual way of showing an issue like climate change where you can't see greenhouse yeah. in the atmosphere. And so all those things combine my personal relationship with the Antarctic and the importance of it as a, as a kind of visual cue telling us what we do to the planet I've I've become very heavily involved in the climate change piece, trying to trying to protect it. Yeah. Um, so when people like, live in a, um, much of the world, but sort of um, thinking about Australia, and you look outside, if it's not cloudy, it's beautiful blue skies, and we've got lovely beaches and and hills. How, how do you kind of get into people's mind, whether it's whether it's government, corporate, or individuals, to get that this matters? I kind of sense that some of the work we do that people kind of know it but it's kind of they've got busy lives got other things to think about how do you how do you get them to understand that this is actually really important it's about instilling a sense of urgency that's the one thing and then giving them a clear roadmap as to what it is they can do to make a make a contribution i think people don't act to do anything about climate change if they believe in it for two main reasons one is they don't feel that sense of urgency and secondly they don't know what it is they have to do hmm. to, to instill the sense of urgency is the tricky thing on the one hand you want to say to people look um it's real it's a big problem we must do something about it but it's not too late if you leave it hanging with all the negative stuff people think oh you know, it's too late my contribution's too small anyway why would i bother you've got to leave them feeling that there's a sense of urgency around dealing with it but their contribution can be significant yeah. that then relies on you finding metrics that speak to people in whatever the circumstances are they're in Um, things closer to home that make a difference you know um, farmer who doesn't believe in it talking about you know droughts they've experienced they've never seen before or fishermen feeling that the fish don't bite in the local river and you know giving them giving them sort of um, indicators close to home that speak to them Mm. that allow them to realize that things are changing then you've got to show them what it is that they can do to make a difference so it's a combination of this finding language and metrics that speak to people and then and instilling some urgency in acting and telling people what what they have to do a lot lot of time people kind of know in their in their own mind that there's a problem they just don't know don't know what to do yeah don't know that first that first step step? in in our um 
discussion before we press record, you're sort of talking about like often um, governments and the likes are looking for a big solution. So the big solution takes a lot of planning and effort to get to, but we can do simple steps. We can we can get things moving without having to wait for a the the best solution or the big solution. What can you unpack? That? Can you unpack that a bit further or explain that? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I think I think. Uh, Humans are great pattern makers. We like to take vast amounts of information and come up with a single silver bullet solution that's going to solve a particular thing. Or that's the reason why a particular course of events happened. It's nice to find a single intellectually satisfying reason as to why a civilization failed in the past. The reality is it's probably a bunch of different factors. And it's the same with the climate change piece. There are no silver bullets in this. And I suggest we work on finding parts of the solution to the problem and just implementing those and moving the whole agenda forward as, as, as rapidly as we can. And that means there needs to be policy work, there needs to be work in the, uh, the economics of renewables, there needs to be work done in educating kids to be more engaged, there need to be better recycling initiatives, there needs to be more um, work done in around uh, default opt-ins. I think that we should be opting people into the environmentally responsible choice and waiting for them to opt themselves out of that rather than waiting for people to choose to do the right thing. There's a whole range of behaviour change, policy steps, economic steps, that are educational quite simple, steps, that, yeah. which are quite simple that need to be being done to move this whole tide yeah. forward. Yeah. Um, and It's not a case of continuing to research to try and find what the single solution might be because it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. And we need to move all of those things forward as best we can, wherever we can. Yeah. At an at an individual household level, what 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 do you sort of what, what should they be doing? All, all of the all of the above, I guess. So. Well, individuals can do a lot. I mean, thirty nine percent of Australia's carbon footprint comes from heating, lighting, and cooling buildings. Yeah. You know, there we go. You know, it's forty percent of, of the of the problem, if you like. Um, uh, people can do all sorts of things, uh, better roof insulation, turning the lights off, taking electrical products off standby. Standby is the second biggest user of power after your fridge, you know, all easy, easy things to do. Uh, walk to work, uh, cycle to work, car share, public transport, invest your super in, in things which are not, uh, you know, in, in ethical funds that are not investing in, in, in the wrong thing. Um, buy life experiences rather than just products all the time. At Christmas, we try not to just inundate ourselves with plastic toys. We try and buy the odd life experience and uh, eat less meat. Yeah. Um, you know, if you eat meat every single meal of the week, try cutting it down to five days. If you eat meat five days a week, try cutting it down to three. Yeah. Better for you, certainly better for the animals yeah. and certainly good for carbon uh, footprint. There are many, many things people can can do in their lives to make a huge, huge difference. And at the end of the day, there's only 22 million of us in Australia yeah, yeah. either buying the wrong stuff or doing the wrong thing um, that is ultimately contributing to the high carbon footprint we've, we've got. Right. I think sometimes the risk in a, in a place like Australia is, oh, there's only 22 million people and like, we've got a lot, a lot of land. You can still see the green. So it looks it looks okay and the sky looks blue. That's those sort of those more populous places like I don't know Shanghai or or, or, or India or, or or even sort of the Western world. So is that kind of disconnect sometimes? Of do you do you see that, or do you do you or do you do you sense that we are making progress that Australians and other parts of the world are are kind of getting the message and um, are starting to make 
I think we're making slow progress here. I mean, I think in the renewable energy space, that's different. I think the beauty of renewable energy is it's just cheaper, so people don't have to make a moral judgment to want to save the planet. They just want to have to want want to you know they yeah. just have to have a desire to want to save money, yeah. and, that, and and it's convenient now that it's you know you can save money and have the moral high ground yeah. when it comes to renewables because they're far cheaper. Um, in other respects, are we doing enough? Not really. I mean, we still grow the wrong things in Australia in, 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 in the wrong places. To be honest, a lot of our agriculture is, is kind of a hangover from the way it was when people uh, first arrived. Non-Indigenous non or... Australians first arrived and you know, we used too much water. You use, yeah. you know, we don't, we still don't have enough renewables in, in the grid. We have, you know, plenty of space, uh, space, plenty of tidal range to get tidal power. We've got a lot of geothermal resources. We've got a heck of a lot of wind. Half of Australia is viable as a wind yeah. for wind, um, and obviously a hell of a lot of sun. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I think the cloudiest place in Australia has twenty percent more sun than the sunniest place in Germany, and they've got three or four times the amount of solar panels installed that we yeah. do. So we've still got work to do, but the renewable energy piece is moving forward yeah. quickly. We're still pretty profligate in the amount of stuff we consume here in Australia. A lot of the houses are big single-storey dwellings. Um, you know, a lot of people have two cars. We go on a lot of overseas trips. and uh, Even Qantas, who has the most successful um, carbon voluntary carbon offsetting scheme, they only have 7% of people buying offsets for their flying. Mm. Um, so all those little bits are, are, are quite, make a big difference. Make a big difference. There's five or six key things people could do to reduce their carbon footprint by 75%. Yeah. Pretty quickly. Well, what role does the general population have in lobbying government, local, state, federal? Uh, you know, I uh, I think it was Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House in the US, had once said the best thing you can do is speak to your political representative and tell them to do better. You know, I don't, I'm not so sure I agree on that front. I think, again, there are no silver bullets. Yes, it's important that politicians understand that you will hold them accountable and it's important for you to, to vote and vote based on your beliefs. Uh, that's, that's for sure. Uh, there are certain things that federal government can't do for us and that's our, our individual behaviours. As I say, where we invest our super, whether we choose to walk to work and get in the car and chug along with everybody else, um, you know, whether we offset our flights, whether we better insulate our homes, uh, how much stuff we consume, how much food we throw away, how much meat we eat. Those decisions can't really be made by uh, by government. That's down to individual choice. And those individual choices make a huge cumulative difference if we mm. all act together. Should we still continue to tell government to do the right thing? Yes, and we should vote based on our conscience, not on mm. necessarily just the economics. But it comes back to individuals doing the right thing. It comes yeah. back to individuals. There is no one else. Yeah. There's no yeah. us and them. It's just us. Yeah. You know, um, them are only people we put in power. Um, and, you know, in terms of the corporate world, it's easy to demonize sectors of industry, which I'm not going to do. Uh, but at the end of the day, those people produce stuff that we consume. So who's ultimately responsible? We are. We're buying all the plastic, all the plastic bags, all the fossil fuel derived products or cars or trinkets, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. no one else. Yeah. And so uh, if we as individuals, Make a stand, and money talks. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. Um, 
the future. So it started off as you, with you as a young boy. What do you kind of see the future being for young people? It could be children or it could be just young people broadly. What, what do you think their priorities need to be? What's the focus moving forward? Well, I mean, kids have a huge role to play. Uh, by 2050, globally, 70% of people will live in cities and the vast majority of them will be under 18. So evidently, uh, we're getting to the point where the demographics are becoming more and more skewed towards young uh, people. Um, you know, young people, they, they have a huge role to play, tell their parents to change behaviour. I think we are now, my kids' generation are, they've just grown up in a world where the internet is a reality, where uh, solar PV is a reality, where you know electric cars increasingly becoming a reality, where everybody recycles. So the whole agenda is has moved forward. Um, but I think it would be remiss of us to wait for the next generation of young kids to get to the age where the decision makers to really change policy. I think still the, 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 the old ones who caused a lot of the problems, my what, generation. What about broadly as, a, I don't know, the, uh, as following your advent, adventuring kind of life or, or just keeping that imagination in their minds or yeah, well, what, do you, what do you think their sort of focus should be? I think, you know, I think people need to remain idealistic throughout their whole lives if they can. I mean, I often say that the four attributes required to get, um, you know, any big idea off the ground, one is having idealism to believe it's possible. Two is having some technical ability, hopefully in the area that you're interested in. Three is having a bit of political nous, understanding what buttons to press to get the outcome achieved, maybe not in a linear way, but understanding how to get it done. And the fourth is having a bit of endurance and a bit of gumption to see it through. Um, if you can align all of those four things, you'll get things achieved. And the number of times I see people in industry who have all the smarts and the, the political nous, but they probably don't have any idealism. They, it's been lost along the way. They feel that things are the way they are and they haven't got an ability to change mm -hmm. them. Or a young person who's idealistic but maybe doesn't have you know, necessarily the depth of life experience to know what buttons to press to get the outcomes uh, achieved. Or some combination thereof. If you don't have those four elements, you often don't get things achieved. The key thing is into adulthood, retaining a sense of idealism, a sense that a sense of optimism that, that you can make a difference yeah. and trying to retain that into adulthood yeah yeah, yeah. we're in a world of highly connected digital world social media our communities are becoming often more online than offline we don't often switch off kids are finding it harder to switch off but adults are just as bad or probably even worse what's your sort of thoughts on technology um it's quite a contrast to some of the discussions we've been having, but obviously it's sort of it's well you know technology's got a role to play obviously i mean on the one hand it depends what aspect of it you want to look at, the interconnectedness of um, things like the global economy are problematic because, you know, a small change in one part of it can uh, spark a, a chain reaction that destabilizes massive systems, and that's part of the natural world too. Apparently big, stable natural systems can be destabilized by small things, and that's increasingly the case. I think uh, people becoming um, a bit removed from one another and a bit less aware of you know, the consequences of their actions is a problem associated with the technology as, as well as becoming de-socialised. That's a, that's a problem too. 
Um, I think, you know, used in the right way, aspects of technology can be very helpful to us. But there are downsides. Yeah. And you're involved in a group called Nature Play? Yeah. You're an ambassador? or yeah. That's right. And Nature Play is all about getting kids back into the outdoors because it's a good learning environment. And, you know, nature is. There are no straight lines. And, you know, trees are not designed for you to climb. They yeah. are trees. And uh, not every branch will support your weight, and they're not. The branches are not equidistant. You know, they're not like a climbing frame in a in a, in a playground that's been designed for you yeah. with a rubber mat if you fall. And climbing a tree is like a metaphor for life. You know, if you you've got to make your own judgments, and occasionally you do fall, and uh, you have to bounce back yeah. from those things. And I think nature is a great teaching environment. makes makes for better, more well rounded adults who have a better capacity to. Um, understand risk, understand where their limits are, and uh, have more of a capacity for lateral thought to think their way through problems. Yeah, still get outcomes. So you can exploring that digital world, but but exploring off the digital world, exploring exploring nature, being part of that is an important part of. Yeah, well, the digi- children. I mean, the digital yeah. world has, suffers from two problems. One is it's been designed by us, so it doesn't think about things outside our. Experience and the second, there are no consequences associated with things in the digital world. You can go and shoot up a uh, computer game environment where you, you know, kids are firing guns uh, online, and there are no consequences associated with any of that. Um, just as the actions of a kind of rogue trader doing insider trading or whatever in in somewhere remote from us can de- destabilize our economy, and there don't mm-hmm. seem to be a lot of that white collar crime. People don't think of as crime because there's no sort of consequences or personal um, interaction with the people who've been disadvantaged and so it doesn't feel like it's a real yeah. thing So, um, but these things do have consequences and I think keeping one foot firmly in a world where your actions do have consequences yeah. is, is a positive thing Yeah, yeah good um, I think we've sort of covered a huge amount uh, and thanks for your time No, it's I've been, enjoyed it's it been, It's been, been wonderful uh, how can people find you? Anything else you'd like to sort of discuss, sort of just to, to close off? But no, I think uh, I mean they can go and visit my website yep. and uh, timjarvis.org. There is a dot com. That's not me. That's an architect <laughs> who got there before me. He's twenty years my senior. Um, twenty five zero is my latest project that looks at climbing uh, equatorial mountains that still have glaciers to highlight the effects of climate change, and we're trying to. Uh, fund climate change projects, doing something about the problem in addition to raising awareness of the problem. Uh, but, yeah, if people support an amplification of those sort of initiatives would be great. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again. All right. All the best. Thank you. Hey, Jason here. Just to say goodbye until next time, please do not forget to subscribe to Real People via iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. While you're there, please leave a review. If you're interested in receiving our every Friday same time emails, topics from market research to human-centered design, innovation, entrepreneurialism, a uh, whole lot of different topics by articles by me, Square Holes team, special guests from Justin Wilden to Steve Samatino, Lisa Domenico, Elaine Steed, uh, been quite popular, very committed every week for the last 18 months or so. Please go to squareholes.com 
forward slash blog to read and to join the email list. You can also follow me via Jason Dunstone on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Aroo.